two efficient market economics professors were walking through Harvard Yard. It was a beautiful spring day. As they were walking, they passed a $20 bill lying on the ground. One of them walked right on by. The other one said, why didn't you pick up the $20 bill? And the first one said, because it's a counterfeit. The second one said, how do you know? He said, well, if it was a real $20 bill, someone would have already picked it up. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. You should write a book. Hey, it's Seth. Writing a book is a generous act. It focuses the mind. It shares your ideas. It earns you credibility. And publishing a book has never been easier. Last year, a million books got published on the Kindle. But writing a book? Writing a book is still difficult. At akimbo.com, we'd like to help do something about that. We are launching a community of practice, a group of people together for six months, supporting one another, moving forward, making a book. It starts in June. Your book will be on the Kindle by January. Check out the details at akimbo.com. You should write a book. You can write a book. We'd love to have you join us. We'll see you there. Write a book about it, everybody want to tell a funny story. I'm a boss, so it comes with the territory. Write a book about it. What does it mean to be rational? If someone is rational, that means that they are going to do what makes sense, what we could predict that they are going to do. Rational behavior is at the core of a branch of economics, but rational behavior is also how we navigate our way through the world. We assume because it's at the center of the curve of how people are going to react, that people are going to do a rational thing. Often, we decide that the rational thing they're going to do is what we would do in that situation, because most of us like to believe that we are rational. Of course, we're not, and neither is anyone else. And I want to share today two projects that I worked on, both of which were great ideas, and both of which failed. And now I understand why. And the lesson for me is not that I should have done the books differently. It's that I was making too many assumptions about what I would do and what rational really is. So here's the first one. I want you to imagine back in the day, before the internet, before Netflix, before Google, a time when millions and millions of people every night went to a blockbuster or independent video store to rent a VHS tape, to take a movie home and watch it with the family. Now, the economics of that business were fascinating because the movies cost the stores a lot of money, $100 or more. And the stores had to make a lot of choices about what to carry. The vast majority of what they could rent was something that was new and hot. That a movie that just came out, the one that lots of people were talking about, that movie was easy to rent. Of course, they couldn't buy a thousand copies of a movie that cost 150 bucks. They'd go bankrupt. So they had just a few. When you got to the video rental store, in all likelihood, the movie you had your heart set on wasn't there anymore. And in all probability, your second and third choice weren't there anymore either. And the deeper you got into the rent-a-movie habit, 
the more likely it was that all the movies you wanted to see, you had already seen. And so you were left with the backlist, the hundreds and hundreds of movies lining the walls of the video store that you hadn't seen, that you didn't know if you wanted to see, that you weren't sure your family wanted to see. And in that moment, video blindness would set in. You would stand there, staring at the wall, waiting for Monty Python and the Holy Grail to jump out at you. But of course, you'd already seen it six times. You wanted the next Monty Python and the Holy Grail to jump out at you. But it wasn't jumping. You were paralyzed. Amnesia was setting in. The seven movies you had in mind when you went to the video store have just left your consciousness. You have no idea what movie to rent. So this is a problem for the video renter. But it's also a problem for the video store. Because the video store doesn't get paid if you don't rent a movie. And the video store doesn't like the feeling of amnesia among its customers. Because it fills the entire store with this feeling of ennui, with this disappointment that the store owner didn't buy more copies of Beverly Hills Cop when it first came out. So what to do about it? Well, I was a book packager, and in those days, every problem to me looked like a book problem. And I said, wait a minute. What if there was a little book, a book that could fit in your pocket, a book that cost 5 or $6, not much more than renting a movie? The Video Renter's Bible. 96 pages of lists. If you're looking for a movie like Rocky, here are eight to consider. Or eight movies that Stephen King thinks are really scary. Fun lists. Lists that grew up to become listicles in our modern age. 96 pages of inspiration to cut through video store amnesia. What a fantastic idea. I knew how to make a book like this. I knew how to produce a book like this. I knew how to publish a book like this. It seemed to me that any video store owner, including the people who did purchasing at Blockbuster, would say, oh, you mean I can get a six-pack of these books, put them on the cash register where I don't have room for anything else anyway? If they don't sell, I can send them back? for a full refund, and if they do sell, I make as much money from the book as I make from renting a video. Plus, with someone having that book in their pocket, they're going to rent a lot more videos. Sign me up. So I went to Starling Lawrence, who, still one of the greatest book editors of all time, fancy books, respected books, books that win prizes, certainly not books like The Video Renter's Bible. I mean, Norton, the fancy book publishing house, Anyway, Starling loved my idea. Along the way, he taught me his recipe for baked potatoes, which I'll share at the end of this podcast. And so we signed a deal. We spent a year making the book. We researched it. We got famous people to contribute their lists. The book came out. And I have no idea if people were going to buy it because stores wouldn't carry it. And the few stores that did carry it, people didn't buy it. So what was going on here? Well, I had failed to account for the fact that my version of rational wasn't the same as their version of rational. 
Their version of rational went a little like this. Number one, people come into our store to rent a video. They don't come into our store to buy a book. I will confuse them if I carry a book. Number two, I already have the people I buy from. This isn't being sold by the people I buy from. It's too confusing for me to open a new account. Number three, I'm the expert on videos. I want them to ask me what video to rent, not to rely on a book. And in the few stores where the book showed up, people who walked in said, I do not want to show my weakness by buying a book like this. I am not sure that a book like this will actually solve my problem. I came into the video store to get a video, not to buy a book. And in places like Blockbuster, there was someone whose job it was to buy large quantities of videos that he or she thought would rent a lot of copies. There wasn't someone whose job it was to buy a little book to go on the cash register. So, in all respects, I was wrong. The book was terrific. The book helped people who actually had the book. But it wasn't the obvious rational choice that I expected it would be. Around the same time, in Publishers Weekly, Cliff's Notes, you may remember Cliff's Notes from when you were a kid, ran an ad. And in this ad, they listed the 30 most popular, best-selling Cliff's Notes of the year. What's a Cliff's Notes? Cliff's Notes, hard to conjugate, Cliff's Notes are cheat sheets. They are 90-page booklets, staple-bound, that don't cost very much money, that if you're in high school and just got assigned a book, you could go to the bookstore, buy one of these for three or four bucks, and instead of reading the book, you could read the Cliff's Notes. Cliff's Notes is now in the vocabulary as the summarized cheat sheet. Again, before the internet, Cliff's Notes were pretty much your only option if you were looking for this sort of summary and information. Just an aside, having read a lot of Cliff's Notes as part of this project, they were really well-written by scholars who knew what they were talking about. But leaving that aside, here's the list of the hundreds and hundreds of Cliff Notes that they sell, of the 30 best-selling ones. And I said to myself, well, people who buy Cliff's Notes are different than people who don't. And that people who buy one set of Cliff's Notes are probably people who buy five or eight or maybe even 30. So what would happen if I put all 30 Cliff's Notes into one easily purchased $12 book that for $12, for the price of three Cliff's Notes, you could get all the Cliff's Notes you're ever going to need? That probably these 30 titles accounted for 90% of their sales. So if you could get 90% of all the Cliff's Notes you're ever going to need for the price of three, and it's easy to store and not a hassle, and you don't have to go to the bookstore to get the next one because you just got assigned a book and there it is, you're ready to go. What a great idea. And I said to myself, the bookstores, they're going to love carrying this book because the fact is when someone comes in and buys one cliff note, they end up making 50 cents, maybe a buck. And they will probably buy that second one from a different store. So if you can just clear the board and for the price of three, where you'll make a profit of $5, take them out of the market for Cliff's Notes, that's in your interest because they are not beholden to your store. And when it comes to the parent or the kid who's buying these books, well, 
having it on your shelf is really useful and it'll make you smart. And guess what? An eight-page summary, which is how long our summaries were, is a lot easier to work through than one written by some college professor that's 90 pages. So I was able, with the help of another book packager, John Boswell, to sell the book to a publisher. We got all excited about QuickLit, and I went to an organization that I helped start when I was in college, and they had tons of college students on staff, so I hired a bunch of college students to write each one of the notes. I wrote The Great Gatsby myself. I picked that one because I thought it was the easiest, but we went all the way from The Great Gatsby to Moby Dick and back again. So there we were, 30 well-written, condensed, Cliff's Notes of Cliff's Notes in one handy book, ready to go. Well, you've already guessed what happened. The bookstores didn't carry that many, and the people who saw them in the bookstores didn't buy that many. Another irrational failure. What had I done wrong? Well, number one, the job of the person at the bookstore. They had a section of the bookstore called Cliff's Notes. That section was making them plenty of money. There was no boss saying to a book buyer, quick, let's figure out how to fix the Cliff's Notes section. The Cliff's Notes section wasn't broken. Every other section of the bookstore was broken in the sense that there were new books coming all the time. You had to figure out how to add new titles that were brand new, fresh, exciting, ready to go to replace the ones that were fading. Not so in the Cliff's Notes section. Number two, my analysis that better to take all of the sales from this customer in the short run didn't really resonate with the book buyer, the person at the bookstore who had to choose. In their mind, Cliff's Notes weren't something they were proud to be doing. They were something they did to pay the bills so they could stock literature instead. And what about the high school students? Well, here's what I learned. High school students, at least back then, felt a little bit guilty about buying Cliff's Notes. And what they told themselves, the way a smoker trying to quit might tell himself, is, this is going to be my last one. I'm certainly not going to invest in a lifetime supply of Cliff's Notes because I'm not going to need another one. I'm just here just this one time. And parents? Parents agreed with their kids. No, 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 no. I get it. It's an emergency this time. We're going to go get one Cliff's Notes. But no, we're not here to solve all of your high school reading problems by buying one shortcut book. Now, I didn't think of the book as a shortcut book. I thought of the book as something that would help kids get deeper into the work because they could get past the brain-dead stuff that we were helping them cover. But that's neither here nor there. What is true is that everybody acts rationally by their own measure. Everyone, when they're making a decision, decides what to do based on what they know, what they believe, what they want, and the noise in their head. And as soon as we realize that Sonder is real, that everyone has a noise in our head the way we have a noise in our head, as soon as we realize that no one is willingly, willfully, intentionally making irrational, random choices, then we have a shot at developing real empathy. The empathy to say, you don't know what I know, you don't want what I want, and that's okay, because you could have this instead. And so, a lesson learned the hard way over and over again. People don't necessarily want what you think they want. Oh, 
Starling Lawrence's baked potato recipe. I can tell you without fear of error that this is the best baked potato recipe in the world. What you do is get some baking potatoes, you clean them, you poke them with a fork three times. You preheat your oven to 500 degrees. You put them in the oven longer than you think you should. Then you eat them. Try it. They're delicious. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As always, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Two questions this week about difficult conversations, similar but different, and another one about a really old episode. So here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Andy from San Francisco. This was a super interesting episode on difficult conversations. I'm curious what you would say to people who may be struggling with having a difficult conversation around, um, well, anything, but particularly romantic um, relationships or, or milestones, for example, proposing um, for marriage or asking someone on a first date. Hey, Seth, this is Martin Kehoe calling from Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. I just listened to your episode about difficult conversations, and I really like this idea of one desire being simple, get everybody out of the burning house, and more than one desire being what creates the difficulty in conversations. You went on to give quite a few examples, and those examples were all from the point of view of a person in authority. Uh, introducing a difficult conversation. I'm curious, what changes to your answer if the stakes are higher, if it's not the person in authority, if it's an employee coming in asking for a wage that's more in line with their contribution, if it's the person who you might say has less status introducing the conversation that potentially is difficult. Thank you both for these questions, and congratulations on the upcoming engagement and hopefully wedding. I hope that your wedding is beautiful, but even more important, I hope your marriage is really sustaining, thrilling, and mutually generous. So with that said, yes, you are both highlighting the fact that some difficult conversations are more difficult than others, that if you are an employee, if you are in a relationship where you don't have enough power to actually dictate that the difficult conversation will take place, we have to go to the second level of power that is available to most people much of the time. 
and that is the power of secession, that we have the ability, if we're not in bondage, to be able to say, if this doesn't change, I need to leave. And that conversation is difficult because we don't want to leave. On the other hand, we want it to change. And so we have to come to grips with the fact that a difficult conversation lasts a few minutes, but a bad decision can last for months or years. That what we have to do is be really clear that engaging in a conversation that leads to short-term stress may very well be the single best thing that you could do. That there are people, for sure, who can't leave, who are in a relationship with so many strings attached that leaving is inconceivable, who don't have the economic wherewithal, particularly now during treacherous times, to stand up and take a stand. And if you are in that situation, my heart goes out to you. And I hope that you will get some help from somebody who can help you find the leverage you need to be able to have the conversation. But most of the time, we're fooling ourselves when we say we can't make this conversation happen, that we don't have enough leverage or power to secede. Because secession, the idea of saying, I cannot keep this going under these circumstances, is an enormous amount of power. The key is to exercise it in a way that the person you're dealing with will choose what you want them to choose. So if you want to quit, just quit. But if you are willing to quit, if things don't get better, now you've discovered a difficult conversation. And if you give the person you're having it with a way to save face, you may discover that you're able to make things move forward. How to save face? Well, for starters, it probably isn't a conversation that you have in public. Of course, it's different if you feel like your safety is in danger, but we're not talking about that. When we sit down with somebody in private and state what got us here in the first place, what the source of mutual respect is, what the opportunities are going forward, and then gain enrollment to have a difficult conversation. When things are like this, I feel like I can't keep going. What should we do about this? And if you can sit on the same side of the table and have that conversation, it will not be easy. It will be difficult indeed. But it may be that secession is better than sticking it out. Again, I don't know the answer, but I do know the question. And the question is, is the difficult conversation worth having if it might mean you have to quit if it doesn't go well? And as for using that thinking when it's time to propose, well, what's difficult in that conversation is the person might say no. And it seems to me that the best way to find out is to talk about it. That too often the difficult conversation is in our head. It is not on the table. And putting it on the table, outlining it without blame, without casting aspersions, but simply to say, when things are like this, I feel like that, opens the door for us to have a chance to move things forward. Because, of course, as we've all learned in the last few months, life is short indeed, too short to spend it day after day wondering about what would happen if we actually had the conversation. Better, I think, to have the conversation, figure out how the world actually works, and then make a decision about what to do next. Hi, Seth. This is Dee May calling in from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. 
Firstly, I hope you're in the very best of health. My question to you is from a rather old episode from 2018. It's the All Rights Reserve episode. And it got me thinking about things that do happen in design and say product design today, whether it's a high street label or even luxury goods that sometimes for certain collections, they do feature motifs, literal cut and paste, maybe change of color motifs from indigenous or native groups. And I was wondering, what is your take on this? So if they were to copyright this back in the day, I guess it would now be in public domain after hundreds or maybe thousands of years. But when it comes to a big brand that profits from the direct design, like copy paste without any attribution, or maybe at most they would say it's a nod to or influenced or inspired by so-and-so, but without any further elaboration or education about that certain community. What is your take on that to people who respond? Thanks so much for your thoughts. This is a great question. I made it a bit shorter, but here's the essence of it. We don't have copyright protection over ancient ideas, motifs, and memes, and that's a good thing. Cultural appropriation is a terrible thing. Cultural appropriation comes from a mismatch of power and implies ridicule. When someone, a brand in particular, chooses to ridicule something important in order to make a sale, they get all of the bad publicity they deserve. It's a stupid way to spread an idea. It's a dumb way to market something. It is disrespectful, and it doesn't help you move forward. But appropriation of culture is different than the spread of culture. How far is jazz allowed to spread? How far is injera bread allowed to spread? How far is crop rotation allowed to spread? That when we find a good idea in a culture and we celebrate it by combining it with another idea or another culture, that's not appropriation. That's how culture evolves, how every culture evolves. If you've ever had spaghetti with meatballs, it's important to note that the Italians did not have tomatoes until 500 years ago, nor did they have pasta. And so, something as classically Italian as a bowl of spaghetti with red sauce isn't classically Italian. It simply represents the melding of cultures. So I think it's really important we get to A, intent, and B, information. If a brand or an individual is so clueless that they don't realize what they've done, we should call them out on it. And if they are doing it with mens rea, with intent, then they should get all of the blame for what they've chosen to do. And no, there's no legal recourse here because copyright has a limited term for a very good reason. Our culture evolves when our culture remixes. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here at Birdland this evening, a recording for Blue Note Records. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible 
or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.